You're listening to GGR Pirate Radio. Don't be a juice bag. I'm Mike Lunsford, and this is Stop Me If You've Heard This, a podcast where we dig deeper into the stories you thought you knew. It was February of 1993, and Nirvana made their way to the secluded Pachyderm Studios in Minnesota to work with Steve Albini, the producer of their third album, In Utero. The last time they had stepped foot in a studio, they were just a little-known Seattle band that had left their small indie label sub-pop for David Geffen's DGC. Now they were owners of a multi-platinum album that knocked Michael Jackson off the charts, and it turned them into one of the biggest rock bands on the planet. With that came an immense pressure to follow up with something amazing. If there was a Rockstar 101 course, I would love to have taken it. Kurt Cobain told Rolling Stone's David Frick in 1993, it might have really helped me. Cobain had one goal in mind, to bring the band back to their punk rock roots. Their millions of new fans may have revered Nevermind, but Cobain thought it sounded candy-ass and way too commercial. So he recruited Steve Albini, who had recorded records for the Pixies, the Breeders, the Jesus Lizard, and a lot of other bands that Cobain called his favorites. In choosing producer Steve Albini to mix and record in utero, Nirvana got exactly what they were looking for, a principled production that was going for the exact sound that they were looking for, much rawer than Nevermind, and showcasing the different abilities and contrasting sounds that Nirvana looked to employ going forward. They choose to record in Minnesota at Pachyderm Studios, specifically because they didn't want any distractions. They wanted to be able to work on the album without the interference of the record company or anybody else trying to influence how it was supposed to sound or how the process was supposed to go. They recorded the album in 14 days, as a matter of fact, which a much shorter period than it took for them to record Nevermind. In fact, Chris Novoselic compared the isolation conditions to a gulag. He added, there was snow outside, we couldn't go anywhere, we just worked. For most of the sessions, the only people present were the band members, Steve Albini and technician Bob Weston. The first single from In Utero was Heart Shaped Box, which we'll listen to right now. So 
the recording sessions with Albini were actually pretty relaxed and pretty stress-free. All they did was work, as previously stated by Nova Selenge, but there was a lot of fun time, too. There were a lot of things that they did uh, between sets. Uh, it was only a matter of five days where the album was completely mixed in that 14-day process. This is quick by Nirvana standards, but not for Albini. Normally, he mixed entire albums in a day or two. On occasions when working on a song mix was not producing the desired results, the band and Albini took the rest of the day off and they watched nature videos. Uh, they set things on fire and they made prank calls for amusement. In fact, one of those prank calls was to frontman of Pearl Jam, Eddie Vedder. Um, Albini pretended to be David Bowie producer Tony Visconti, and he told Eddie Vedder over the phone that he would gladly work with him if he left Pearl Jam and went solo. Um, it was even funnier, too, because at the time, Nirvana and Pearl Jam were in a quote-unquote uh, feud, which was never really actually a feud. It was just fueled by the media. Cobain wasn't exactly neutral in his interviews. He said that um, he just didn't like Pearl Jam. I've always hated their band, is what he said. He said, but we never had a fight. Uh, Eddie Vedder and Kurt Cobain actually goofed off at the 1992 MTV Music Awards, and they slow danced underneath the stage when Eric Clapton was playing Tears in Heaven. Uh, Eddie Vedder told Rolling Stone in 2006, we were slow dancing on a gym floor as though it was the seventh grade dance. So they even had fun with the concept of uh, there being a feud. Overall, Nirvana was very happy with the results of recording with Albini for In Utero. They were able to do something quickly, 14 days again, as I mentioned. And the reason for that, Albini actually states it in his uh, proposal that he wrote to Nirvana, if a record takes more than a week to make, somebody's fucking up. The speed at which they record, combined with the raw, visceral sound and minimal production, differed greatly from Nevermind, which was on purpose. And now here's my favorite song off of the album, and that's Radio Friendly Unit Shifted. punk rock sensibilities that Kurt had about the way he wanted Nirvana to sound um, kind of took a backseat because as he mentioned, Nevermind was too slick and polished for him, but even as things were going through with the mixes on In Utero, uh, Kurt was torn because he wanted to maintain those millions of fans that they gained from ne uh, Nevermind. And Cobain compromised by keeping the work Albini did on most of the songs, but he allowed Scott Litt, who was a uh, producer of R.E.M., to remix uh, some of the singles uh, off the album for radio consumption. Uh, it was a controversial decision that caused backlash from some fans and even Albini himself. Those two singles that they had Scott Litt remix were, as we just heard, Heart Shaped Box and then also to the song we're about to hear right now, All Apologies.
the end result was in utero, and it was 41 minutes of raw, uncompromising rock. It was unlike anything else in the pop landscape. Kurt Cobain was disenchanted overall with his fame and widespread media coverage of his personal life, and he was ready to vent, and this really came out in this album. But In Utero wasn't the original title. In fact, the original title was I Hate Myself and I Want to Die. Now, here's the thing about that. Obviously, Kurt needed to be careful with his media persona that was being portrayed, and he stated in Rolling Stone, nothing more than a joke. Uh, The line which first appeared in Cobain's journals in mid-1982 became the working title for the follow-up to Nevermind. I'm thought of as this pissy, complaining, freaked-out schizophrenic who wants to kill himself all the time, and I thought it was a funny title, but I knew the majority of people wouldn't understand it. So it was kind of a dig at the media for all of that. And they worked on it. Chris Novoselic urged him, you know, hey man, maybe this isn't the best title for this. So they changed it to a working title of Verse, Chorus, Verse. But Cobain finally settled on In Utero, which he took from a poem of Courtney Love. All in total... In Utero would be an amazing follow-up. It debuted on the Billboard 200 at number one, and it ended up selling 15 million copies worldwide. Christopher John Farley of Time wrote in his review of the album, Despite the fear of some alternative music fans, Nirvana hasn't gone mainstream, though this potent new album may once again force the mainstream to go to Nirvana. In Utero was released in September of 1993, and by October of the same year, uh, Nirvana was on tour. Uh, They embarked on their first tour of the United States in two years, with supports of bands uh, Half Japanese and The Breeders. For the tour, they added uh, Pat Smear, who actually uh, became a member of the Foo Fighters in future years, but also was backing guitar on their famous episode of MTV Unplugged. What's often regarded as one of their best albums the MTV Unplugged album was very difficult to record. They rehearsed for two days, and the rehearsals were tense and difficult, with the band running into problems performing various songs. During the sessions, Cobain disagreed with MTV as to how the performance should be presented. Uh, producer Alex Coletti recalled that the network was unhappy with the lack of hits Nirvana sang in the set list, and the band's choice of the Meat Puppets as guests saying MTV wants to hear the right names, Eddie Vedder, or Tori Amos, or anybody else famous, upset The day before filming, Cobain refused to play. However, he appeared at the studio the following afternoon, and he was suffering from severe drug withdrawal and nervousness at the time. One observer said there was no joking, no smiles, no fun coming from him. Therefore, everybody was more than a little worried about his performance. But we'll listen to a little bit of About a Girl, which was originally on their first album, Bleach, but covered here uh, for the MTV Unplugged album.
of dealing with the pains of drug withdrawal, Kurt Cobain pulled out one of his favorite songs of all time off of one of his favorite albums of all time, and that's The Man Who Sold the World by David Bowie. his journals, Kurt Cobain ranked The Man Who Sold the World at number 45 in his top 50 favorite albums um, after it was released. David Bowie was actually quite impressed and said, I was simply blown away when I found that Kurt liked my work and have always wanted to talk to him about his reasons for covering The Man Who Sold the World and that it was a good straightforward rendition and sounded somewhat, somehow very honest. It would be nice to have worked with him, but just talking with him would have been really cool. Bowie called Nirvana's cover heartfelt, noting that until this cover, it hadn't occurred to me that I really was part of America's musical landscape. I always felt my weight in Europe, but not in the U.S. And in the wake of the release, Bowie bemoaned the fact that when he performed the number himself, he would encounter kids that would come up afterwards and say, it's cool that you're doing a Nirvana song, and I think, fuck you, you little tosser. (laughs) While setting up for the recording of their MTV Unplugged episode, Uh, Cobain suggested that the stage be decorated with stargazer lilies, black candles, and a crystal chandelier. Cobain's request prompted the show's producer to ask him, you mean like a funeral? To which the singer replied, yes, exactly, like a funeral. Unlike many artists who appeared on the show, Nirvana filmed their entire performance in a single take. It just spoke volumes of their professionalism and work ethic that they were able to complete the entire 14-song playlist without having to break or redo or cut or anything like that and just further shows that even in the throes of drug withdrawal um, intense stomach pains which is something that had plagued Cobain his entire life that they were still able to knock out one of the arguably best albums of the 90s to close their MTV Unplugged set uh, Nirvana chose a performance of the traditional song Where Did You Sleep Last Night which was arranged by famous blues musician Lead Belly, whom Cobain described right before the song as his favorite performer ever. So let's go ahead and listen to that amazing cover of Where Did You Sleep Last Night.
To further showcase Cobain's insecurities with his own musical abilities, he kind of bucked the trend of the unplugged mantra that the MTV series had. Uh, In fact, he asked the producers to include an amplifier and effects pedals. Uh, Cobain insisted on running his acoustic guitar through them. Um, The producer of the show built a fake box in front of the amplifier to disguise it as a monitor wedge uh, and was quoted as saying, it was Kurt's security blanket. He was used to hearing the guitar through his Fender. Um, when he, he, he wanted those effects so that you can hear it. Um, and actually, if you listen uh, in Man Who Sold the World in the very beginning, you can hear the effects going on. It's an acoustic d- guitar, but he's obviously going through an amp. Um, just showing his own insecurity and his own ability to play an acoustic set all by himself. The album was released in November of 1994, which was about seven months after Kurt had uh, been found dead. After its release, it debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 and sold 310,000 copies, which was the highest first week sales of Nirvana's career. The album received positive reviews from critics, but again, they had a lot of problems reviewing it because of how it came out. Uh, Q Magazine, for instance, said that it was uh, the band sounded most moving, possessed of a ragged glory. Uh, Rolling Stone found that the record uh, was stirring and occasionally brilliant with spare and gorgeous spots everywhere. Ben Thompson from Mojo felt unlike most unplugged releases, the format's colorless, generous aspect and not seeing the actual performance benefited Nirvana because of how intense it seemed in light of Cobain's death. And in Entertainment Weekly, David Brown also felt unsettling listening to it. He said, beyond inducing a sense of loss for Cobain himself, Unplugged elicits a feeling of musical loss, too. The delicacy and intimacy of these acoustic arrangements hint at where Nirvana, or at least Cobain, who had said to be frustrated with the limitations of the band, could have gone. After the band finished, Cobain argued with the show's producers who wanted an encore. Cobain flatly refused because he felt there was no way he could top the performance of Where Did You Sleep Last Night. In fact, here's how Atlantic critic Andrew Wallace Chamings described that final song in the set. For the final line, I would shiver the whole night through. Cobain jumps an octave, forcing him to strain so far he screams and cracks. He hits the word shiver so hard that the band stops as if a fight broke out at a sitcom wedding. Next, he howls the word whole, and then does something very strange in the brief silence that follows, something that's hard to describe. He opens his piercingly blue eyes so suddenly, it feels like someone or something else is looking out under the bleached lank fringe with strange clarity. It's understandable why he didn't want to do an encore after that. Unfortunately, after the recording of 
the MTV Unplugged set that Nirvana did, it was pretty much downhill from there. Things didn't go well. And early 1994, the band embarked on their European tour, and their final concert took place in Munich, Germany on March the 1st. In Rome, on the morning of March the 4th, Courtney Love found Kurt Cobain unconscious in the hotel room, and he was rushed to the hospital. A doctor from the hospital explained in a press conference that Kurt Cobain had reacted to a combination of prescription drugs and alcohol. The rest of the tour was canceled. And in the ensuing weeks, unfortunately, Kurt's heroin addiction resurfaced. There is a lot of speculation that it was at this time that things were not as they seem. Because Courtney Love actually came out and had a press conference and said that this incident in Rome with the prescription drugs and the alcohol was Kurt's first attempt to commit suicide. But that was contrary to what the doctors had said. That was also contrary to anything that Kurt had said himself. So there started to have some questions raised as to what actually was occurring. But things were not going well. On March 18th of 1994, Courtney Love phoned the Seattle police informing them and Kurt was suicidal and had locked himself in a room with a gun. Police arrived and confiscated several guns and bottles of pill from Cobain, who insisted that he wasn't suicidal at all, that he had locked himself in the room to hide from Love. And she arranged an intervention for him on March the 25th of 1994. The ten people involved, including musician friends, uh, record company executives, and one of Kurt's closest friends, Dylan Carson. For by the end of the day, Kurt had agreed to undergo a detox program. And he arrived at the Exodus Recovering Center in Los Angeles on March the 30th of 1994. When visited by friends, there was no indication to them that Cobain was in any negative or suicidal state of mind. He spent the days talking to counselors about his drug abuse and personal problems, happily playing with his daughter, Frances. These interactions were the last time Cobain saw his daughter, unfortunately. The following night, Cobain walked outside to have a cigarette and climbed over a six-foot-high fence to leave the facility, which he had joked earlier in the day would be a stupid feat to attempt. He took a taxi to Los Angeles airport and flew back to Seattle. On the flight, he actually sat next to Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses. Despite their animosity towards each other and their bands, and specifically Axl Rose, Cobain seemed happy to see McKagan. Uh, McKagan later stated, He knew from all my instincts that something was wrong. Most of his close friends and family were unaware of his whereabouts. Now this is when things get interesting, to say the least. It was on April 3rd that Courtney Love hired private investigator Tom Grant to find Cobain. Now, here's the thing. We can't finish a Stop Me If You Heard This about Nirvana without discussing the death of Kurt Cobain. As far as most people are concerned, it was a suicide. In fact, as far as the Seattle Police Department is concerned, it was a suicide. But this is where things get kind of interesting. Uh, Private investigator Tom Grant did a lot of studying, a lot of searching, a lot of investigating his job to find Kurt Cobain. And in looking for him, he found something that he wasn't really expecting. And that was a lot of evidence that this was not a suicide. A lot of evidence that this was probably something else and that it's possible. And let me state that right up front, possible. Not, it did happen, but it's possible that Courtney Love might have been involved. And I'm going to read this directly from the description of a documentary called Soaked in Bleach, which is by filmmaker Benjamin Statler about Tom Grant's uh, investigation. Grant was hired uh, by Courtney Love days before Kurt Cobain died and after he left a Los Angeles rehab center. Grant is but the main storyteller here and the source of scores of damning audio tapes. 
mistrustful of Courtney Love. He taped his conversations with her and with other players in the drama, both before and after Cobain's body was found. Those tapes are the basis for reenactments here with actors playing the uh, the detectives and Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain, for that matter. They picture her in this documentary as quite the narcissist, and it is hard to avoid this. On tape, she sounds like someone weaseling around the truth, and there's a lot of evidence that just really doesn't add up. So, like, for instance, the attorney for the family, for Courtney and Kurt and for Frances Bean, her name is Rosemary Carroll, she raised even more doubts when discussing wills, prenuptial agreements, dubious suicide notes, because at one point, the famous suicide note that's out there, they did an analysis. The problem was they couldn't find the original, the actual original note, because Courtney Love was in possession of it, and it went missing. The two portions of it seemed completely different, and, and it was just written off as, oh, well, he was so whacked out on heroin, there's no way that he could have written anything that would have made any sense anyways. Well, here's the problem with that is when analyzed by a handwriting specialist, the handwriting samples in the beginning of the note and the end of the note. The actual part at the end of the note is what is basically saying, you know, I'm sorry, forgive me, yada, 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 essentially the actual suicide. The first part was just a poem, but the second part doesn't match with the first part. And on top of that, Tom Grant found a handwriting sample in Courtney Love's bag of her practicing different letters to try to make it look like she was writing in Kurt's hand. Now, could it have been something else? Yeah, it absolutely could have been, but it certainly looked like it was her trying to copy her husband's handwriting. Now, here's the other problem with this, too. The amount of heroin that was found in Kurt's body when he was found on April the 8th was three times the lethal limit. Now, he was a a heroin addict, so it would take more heroin to actually give him a high, but still, he would have been incapable of doing what they claim he did, which is holding a shotgun up to his own head and pulling the trigger. But not only that, too, where the shell casing was found was the exact opposite side of where it would have ejected from the gun. The problem with all of this, the Seattle Police Department didn't investigate any of this. They walked into the scene, they said, okay, this is a suicide, and that was it. They never did an autopsy, they never analyzed the weapon, They never analyzed the crime scene. In fact, the crime scene was destroyed. So was the gun. The gun was melted down. All of the evidence was destroyed, including Kurt's body. He was cremated, and his ashes were scattered. So there was never an opportunity to do this. And as you go through this, you actually talk to retired Seattle Police Chief Norm Stamper, and he says that this needs to be reinvestigated. None of them are saying, oh, Courtney Love was guilty of murder or any of that nonsense, but what they're saying is that this needed to be investigated, that this needed to be reopened. And even Cyril Wecht is his name. He's the former president of the American Academy of Forensic Science. He said the same thing. The evidence just didn't add up. None of it made any sense, and it was just really, really shoddy police work. So then it begs the question, why? Why would Courtney Love, someone who claimed to be in love with Kurt Cobain, why would she do this? Why would she want to murder her husband? Well, first, in that March 18th police call where she calls the police on him saying that he was going to commit suicide, he ended up telling the police that he wasn't even going to shoot himself. He was locked himself in that room because he wanted to get away from her. And Rosemary Carroll, the lawyer, actually stated that Kurt had had conversations with her about drawing up divorce papers, that he wanted to see how difficult it would be to divorce Courtney Love. And 
somebody who's a narcissist, somebody who wants fame, somebody who wants money, who wants fortune, is going to do anything they possibly can to stop that from happening. And on top of that, there is a, a, a killer quote from this movie that just absolutely crystallizes it. And it says, if you want to get away with murder, kill a junkie. And that's exactly what Kurt Cobain was. And it's and it was just a shame that such an, a passionate, incredible talent died before his time and there wasn't even so much as as a, a thought to investigate it. It was just, oh, he's just another depressed rock star who overdosed on drugs and then killed himself. Like There was not even so much as a flicker of compassion. Everybody had just completely written him off. And that ultimately was what the saddest part of this whole story was, is that one of the voices of the Gen X movement, of the grunge rock scene of the 90s, was snuffed out, whether of his own hand or by somebody else's nefarious designs. Guys, I appreciate you hanging in there for this extended Stop Me If You Heard This All About Nirvana. They're one of my favorite bands of all time, as you can tell with how much passion I spoke about and how much useless information I had in my brain. I have to credit all of my sources for this. I mean, Wikipedia is, is a great place to start because it gives you all of the pieces that you need. From there, it was uh, finding articles on Rolling Stone, many articles on Rolling Stone, articles in Variety, articles on Rotten Tomatoes as far as the reviews of Soaked in Bleach when, uh, when it comes down to the documentary that was made. Just a, a litany of information that's out there. The goal of this podcast was to take those preconceived notions that we have about Nirvana, about Kurt Cobain, and really kind of knock them to the floor. This is a, 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 an incredibly complex man, an, a, an awesome band that happened to just hit the wave at the right time. It was right place at the right time for these guys. They were incredibly talented and committed musicians, but they also managed to do the perfect thing at the perfect time. And it's a shame that we couldn't have seen what they were, what more could have come from them. But we're seeing some of that in what Dave Grohl is doing with the Foo Fighters. So, guys, again, thank you so much for listening to what we do here. Uh, this has been another episode of Stop Me If You Heard This. Juice bags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy.